Have you seen Sonic yet? I've not. I was going to go when I was uh, traveling a couple of weeks ago. And due to just being kind of overwhelmed with the traveling, Aaron and I decided to take a week off. We were actually going to cover Sonic for our our podcast, Mm -hmm. but I haven't gotten a chance to see it. However, one of my coworkers wants to. So I think at some point I'm going to take advantage of my Regal Unlimited Mm -hmm. and go see it uh, with him. I'm curious, did you ever play the Sonic games growing up or anything like that? Yes. In fact, during the wars, the Sega and Nintendo, I was a Sonic guy. (laughs) Sonic would kick Mario's butt in a heartbeat. He was the cool guy. (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't involved in those wars. I played Sonic Adventure 2 back on my GameCube uh, back in the day. Um, All right. So I I had a little experience with Sonic. I I had the the awful Xbox 360 game when that came out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The original Genesis games were were the best. I think that the Sega hit the nail on the head with that character and that particular game. Mm-hmm. Did you go see the movie? I did. I saw it this weekend uh, while I was on conference and had a free moment. And I was surprised and really delighted by how much I liked it. Like, it's not going to win any acting awards. It's not going to win Best Picture or even get nominated for anything like that. But it's really fun. And it doesn't need to. That's the yeah. thing is I think two things there are very few movies that I want to champion and for specific reasons. And Sonic was one of those movies that I wanted to succeed if for no other reason than because the creators listened to the population. They listened to the fans when they came out with that really not great (laughs) CGI rendered Sonic and they took their time, they spent money. And so I'm telling anybody I can't, even though I have not seen it yet, just from a game appreciation point of view, throw your money at this thing. It deserves it. And it, movies don't have to be amazing to be good. They can be good if they're good. That's definitely true. I agree with you there. And, you know, I, I was glad to give them my money too after that redesign and watching the film. It's nice to look at Sonic and recognize him from the yes. games and not him be this weird CGI abomination. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so I'm excited to listen to y'all's podcast whenever you record uh, an episode after you've seen it because I, I saw that you were considering it at least. Um, we so were, yeah. And if it had been for just sort of mental health breaks that we that we needed, I needed specifically, we probably would have would have covered it. So at some point, I'm going to see it just for the sake of enjoyment. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Awesome. Well, I think we're ready to go ahead and transition into the episode. So I'm announcing to the listeners, I've got a cool new toy. That lets me push a button and cue this up. So here we go. And now I can be real classy and slightly slide down the mixer as the track continues to play and I continue to talk. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just having too much fun with this. I'm working with a pro here. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty <laughs> proud of this right now that I've got, I'm, I'm working with the mix master, mix master, Chad. This is what we needed in Starbucks. This is exactly what we needed in Starbucks when we recorded. Oh, it is. Oh, hundred percent. And th- this, this oh. thing has like four microphone hookups. And so uh, next time next I, movie I we hook up, up in Texas, it'll be awesome Texas. and it'll be amazing. We're going to go to the Starbucks the place and we're going to see movies. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the hot spot of the South, Texarkana, Texas. <laughs> well, hi, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm great, man. It's great to be back on the show. And it's great to 
have a show to be back on. And welcome yes. back to the world of Cinescope. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. It's been really fun stepping back into the watching movies and then talking about them chair, which I haven't been in in a long time. I've, I was so single focused on The Office for so long and nothing wrong with that, but I'm glad to be doing this more regularly. And so uh, I'm really excited to be talking about today's movie because one, it's one of my favorite musicals. Two, it's your first time back in a long time. And you were the person I thought of when I decided I wanted to talk about this. And three, we've got a remake of this movie coming out later this year by Steven Spielberg. And so there is so much to be excited about. And that is all to say that we are talking about West Side Story, the original 1961 film based on the Broadway musical. And I am ready to dive in if you are. Let's do it. Okay, this movie was released on October 18th of 1961. It was directed by Robert Wise and Jeremy Robbins. Now, Jeremy Robbins is a uh, choreographer for Broadway productions. He did On the Town, The King and I, Gypsy, which he also directed, and Fiddler on the Roof, which he also directed. And Robert Wise is more of a just traditional film director. He directed The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Haunting, The Sound of Music, the Andromeda Strain and Star Trek: The Motion Picture, among other wow. things. So, what a gamut of, of yeah, directorial the, the, the pictures. whole span. Yeah. He, he covered it all. It was written by Ernest Lehman, but it was based on, as I said, the stage musical by Robbins, who originally conceived the concept. Conceived the concept. That's a little bit repetitive, but it's okay. For the show, the book was by Andrew Lawrence, and the music was by Leonard Bernstein, and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. And then that was based on the play Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, uh, which I have words to say about in a moment. Leonard Bernstein also did the musical uh, On the Town, and Stephen Sondheim has grown into his own fame separate from writing lyrics for West Side Story in his 20s. He also did Gypsy, A Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, and Into the Woods, which is my favorite by him, I think. And the movie stars Natalie Wood, Richard Boehmer, Russ Tamblin, Rita Marino, and George Chakiris. So, um, now that we're past all that, I have a surprise. I, I want to push this. Okay, let's do it. What? <laughs> uh, what was your first experience with this movie, Patrick? Do you remember or some I do, of your earliest actually. experiences? I was a sophomore in college, and up until this particular class of music appreciation, my musical palette lended itself to some musicals. I played Conrad Birdie in the hit musical Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, I say that sort of tongue in cheek. And I had, I had some love for musicals in general, but it wasn't until my sophomore year when I was taking this music appreciation class and my professor pulled up a, the quintet from West Side Story to explain um, a technique that we can talk about more when we get into the musical section of this. I don't want to spoil it too early. And I remember thinking, wow, this is phenomenal. Not just the music itself, but the way he was explaining it to me. And it made me want to go check it out. So I found it on uh, a little thing called VHS. I don't know if the listeners are familiar with that, but <laughs> I found it at a video store. Again, something that our listeners may not know about. And, and popped it in. And two hours and 33 minutes later, I w had fallen in love. This was an amazing movie and making the connection from the actor's point of view, seeing that Natalie Wood, who I loved in, in Miracle on 34th Street, seeing her grown up just made that even better. And then of course I loved musicals, holiday musicals. And so the actor who played Bernardo, he was a background dancer, I think in white Christmas, mm -hmm. 
uh, at one in one scene. So I was making all these connections. But West Side Story for me really stemmed from that class, and out of an appreciation, no pun intended, for this particular musicals music, not just musical music in general, but the way in which Sondheim and Bernstein worked together to craft something that really helped me understand that music and lyrics aren't just things that make people become entertained in a musical, but they add, they add a little bit of layer to the overall narrative that's, that's being kind of expressed in this. And so watching it uh, numerous times over the course of those several years, I started picking up on more of that, but it really started my sophomore year in college. Okay. I mean, I was also involved in theater growing up. I've talked about this on the show before, but uh, I started showing up in musicals. Uh, I mean, I did the church musicals when I was a kid. And then I get to middle school and I was in Schoolhouse Rock Live Junior. And I was in Aladdin Junior, the musical. And then high school, I did Wizard of Oz and I did uh, Little Women and Beauty and the Beast and Into the Woods. And so I, I came from a theater sort of background as well. Uh, I think the first time I really remember watching this movie was for a school project. It was either in middle school or early high school, and I loved it from the start, too. I really don't like Romeo and Juliet. Like, not my thing. We had to read that at some point for school, too, and I'm not a fan. Just don't care for it. Not even a little bit. And it's not in opposition to Shakespeare, either. It's just that particular Shakespeare story, I don't like it. Um, but this is a refreshing enough twist that my opinion is just completely opposite from the original play by Shakespeare. Um, the, the, the race and the class sort of warfare that is so much at the forefront of this movie. Uh, I think that really sort of just changes everything. Uh, I mean, not, I think it does change everything. It's very different than just two feuding families. And, you know, over the years I've sung stuff by both Bernstein and Sondheim. I've played stuff by both Bernstein and Sondheim as an instrumentalist. And I love both of those things. So to have them both combined here is just so great. They are unbelievably talented. Uh, the, the music is iconic. The lyrics, I, I, I was thinking to myself earlier, Sondheim is sort of like, goodness, what's that Hollywood screenwriter's name? Uh, he's like the Aaron Sorkin of Broadway musicals. Like he, he just, he's so witty and so uh, great with the lyric that it, it's like 90 miles a minute. Like it's so, so great. You're exactly right, and I had never thought about it like that, but you're, you're exactly right. The way in which he puts lyrics and rhymes together, it's true lyricist talent. Mm -hmm. And watching how these characters actually articulate that in a way, you know, music can be great and lyrics can be great, but if you can't execute them with good voices and expressions, not only verbal but nonverbal, they're really just words and notes on a page. They don't come to life until you have the right characters. And I think that when you put Bernstein and Sondheim together, you really created an all-star team because these guys have not only made a name for themselves individually, but they are iconic when it comes to when you think about musicals. Like it's, you know, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein, only not that kind of a couple. They're just that powerful. And like you, I think Into the Woods is probably my favorite Sondheim production. Mm-hmm because of those things, because of the wittiness, the kind of weird look that he gives the, or weird twist that he puts on the fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And I think that what he brings to West Side Story is that kind of weird twist. Like you mentioned, this is based off of Romeo and Juliet, but you won't, you wouldn't really know that unless you'd read that because it feels very refreshing. It feels like something that is 
it makes sense. It's not forced. It doesn't feel like, oh, we're just trying to fit these two types of culturally different gangs in a world that is really wrapped around Shakespeare's story. And I love the fact that Shakespeare is uncredited as one of the authors of the of this musical. <laughs> well, and you know, it's the same approach for The Lion King, for example. The Lion King is very much inspired by Hamlet. Yeah. So you've, you've got that same, if you didn't know it, you wouldn't need to know it. But knowing that you can make those references, you can make those comparisons. And it's really cool that you are able to do that. Uh, now, going on to the story... Uh, I wanted to just start off with the thing I always talk about when we have this instance. There's an opening overture, and it's amazing, and we get to showcase Leonard Bernstein's fantastic music for a couple of minutes, and the the visuals of the lines dropping. I think the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, what's going on? This isn't very interesting to look at, at least. Uh, But then when we get to the, the closing of the overture, and we zoom out, and we have the title card, and then all of a sudden the the lines fade into the skyline of New York. That is so cool. And then we get even we even get an intermission and an on track. It is very much the Broadway experience on a film, in a film, which is really cool. I love that. And I, I will always shout out films that give us an opening. It's not an opening credits sequence, but it is an opening overture. I love that. I love the music being showcased for a moment by itself. Well, it's very obviously common for musicals to do that. I mean, most, you know, Oklahoma does that. Uh, you've got Mary Poppins, I think, that does that a little bit. I recently watched, rewatched Bedknobs and Broomsticks while I was traveling, and it does that as well. And I find it interesting that, if I remember right, in most of these overtures, you basically get every credit by every person that worked on it, as opposed to what our traditional movies today are really just more of your main stars, the headliners, and then your writer and director credits and cinematography and things like that. And then you get your supplementary stuff afterwards. What I enjoyed, Chad, was the the transition to the visual of New York mm-hmm. and getting to see 1960s New York as it as it stood. This wasn't an animation. This wasn't a drawing. This was a an aerial shot of the different pieces of New York because New York in and of itself in most movies and most TV shows is a supporting character. It is a fantastic setting for movies. I talked about this on our Ghostbusters episode with our one of our uh, our contributors, Jeremy, and I mentioned that that Reitman wanted to show off the beauty of New York and the iconography of New York by having these different scenes set in these different places. So, getting a chance in West Side Story to see during that overture an actual overture of the city, mm-hmm. knowing that for the rest of the film we're just going to get sets. We're not going to get pieces of New York. We're not necessarily going to be on location. I think it really helped get you into the world that we're going to be in, which is life in New York with Americans and Puerto Ricans. Right. And we also get the the fantastic introduction to just the, the concept of the jets and the sharks in that opening sequence too. After the overture, uh, we get the panning of the city from the sky. And then all of a sudden we hear the whistle and the whistle is just kind of haunting. And I've, I've got this on a button too. <laughs> and so we, we get that fantastic, just like, okay, what's happening? And then all of a sudden there's the jets and they're snapping. And then we close in and they're ruling the playground, just looking cool. And then they dance down the street and it totally works because of their self-confidence. We don't have any doubts about the realism of this because it doesn't matter. They're confident in themselves and they clearly are in charge. And then as we explore through the opening number of the streets of New York, we get the sharks too. And we, we understand their rivalry without them having to explain it to us. We even get the the bits of the turf war through the dancing and the controlling the streets. 
and then it does turn into a full brawl, but even then it's a dance brawl. And I, I think this movie sort of gets like some cultural flack or not flack necessarily, but it gets poked fun at for the, the dance fighting. We were talking about the the office earlier because of my other podcast. And there's even that, that episode in season three, I believe called the fight where Michael and Dwight are going to fight each other. And Jim is like so excited. He's like doing the snap fights behind <laughs> exactly. him as he follows him to the kitchen. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it's almost like a, the butt of a joke, but in context of the film, it's not funny. It's just the way of the world. And it's really great. Yeah. Well, and I think having that overture and having that sequence set up, it really does manage your expectations as an audience, whether you're watching it in 1961 or writing or watching it in 2020, you understand that there is a sense of surrealism that lives in this story. We're not, this isn't a biopic. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to tell a real life story about these real gangs that lived in New York. There might be some out there, but there's something pretty beautiful about especially there's a particular sequence with, I believe it's the sharks and Bernardo is doing like pirouettes. Mm -hmm. And there's this like this, before they get into a full on like dance brawl, there's this almost like this elegance of them pushing themselves further and closer to the jets where it's emulating a sense of bowing up mm -hmm. to a gang member or, or, you know, really capturing that sense of aggression but doing it in a way that makes sense to the musical genre. Because if you were to try to choreograph a fight sequence, it would be completely different. When I watch an episode of The Flash, which I think has some pretty fantastic fight choreography, it would not make sense for them to do pirouettes and for them to do elegant flips. It makes sense for them to fight the way they do, to flip at a particular time. And I think for this musical genre, West Side Story really does capture in a beautiful way what the musical side of this movie is. And I love, love, love that opening sequence because you do get all that. You get this sense of, wow, these guys are, you understand what's happening with them. You know, there's aggression, you know, there's conflict, but it's done in a way that feels very much like I'm in a musical. This is what it's going to be. You're not going to pull any punches, metaphorically speaking, and you're not going to make me believe it's something other than what it is, which is a musical. And so from that point on, I can appreciate the story knowing that, like most musicals, you're going to go into a lyrical sequence and like, I need to sing about this. And so unless you just don't appreciate musicals, it was very refreshing to get that, that opening set of, uh, of dancing and music together. And something that that opening also sort of establishes for us is, yes, that there's, there, there's this, this elegance to the fighting in the film. There's this... Uh, dance quality this ballet quality to it but the one moment where it is not a dance and it is taken very seriously is at the brawl under the highway when they pull out the knives yep and so that contrast stands out immediately because th there are parts of that that are like obviously choreographed but it's not the same elegant kind of choreography it's jabs and it's swings and it's lunging after each other and that sequence since it is such a serious sequence and it has such a serious result it, it makes sense that that would stand out and be different from what we see at other points in the film when they are quote fighting. Yeah. And I love the deliberateness of that because of the fact that these guys want you to experience the severity of what's about to happen and what takes place. I mean, at this point, I think we're into spoiler free territory. Oh, obviously. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're spoiler spoiler spoiling all the things. So when you have, when you have that death, it, it matters. It doesn't feel cheesy because we've built up this moment 
that brings you into a place of reality. There's a knife. Somebody gets stabbed. They're not getting stabbed with a pirouette. They're getting stabbed because somebody has literally lunged at them and has cut them and killed them. And there's weight there. Granted, in a musical, it's difficult to kind of experience that weight. But I think that this film in particular sets it up in a way where at that moment we've gotten so connected to these characters and to what's going on that when this fight, this actual fight happens, it not only makes sense, but it's significantly emotionally significant as well. What else about the story stands out to you? I really, really like the Jets and Sharks relationship. I like that from the very opening pitch, we get a rivalry and that rivalry expands into a sense of understanding or misunderstanding culture. There are small moments throughout the movie where, in particular with Officer Krupke, I think it happens at the very beginning, but it also happens later on, I think, in the, in the, in the drugstore. He doesn't like either gang, but there is a prejudice that he has, particularly towards the PRs. And I remember specifically in the opening, he does have a bias. He doesn't want these kids fighting because it's a headache for him. But in particular, he has a slant towards the PRs because, you know, they're not Americans. I mean, they're Puerto Ricans. And that theme carries itself through. It plays out even within the relationships between a lot of the PRs. And you have this weight of a false sense of freedom that gets toyed with. So there are a lot of themes that get messed around with. And I think that for early 1960s, that was really interesting to see that take place. So I don't know if you mentioned when the actual Broadway musical took place or when it debuted. I think it was 1957. It was pretty hot off of the success of the stage musical that the film was made. Yeah. So having that kind of theme that really has relevance today, I think stood out to me more than anything because it's something that we can still connect to in 2020, this idea that even among groups that are against each other, they find commonality against the police and the police who are supposedly supposed to fight for all have a bias towards a particular group. And that's a, that's a narrative that's definitely relevant today. And so even on my recent rewatch, that's something that really stood out to me. I agree. And I'll, I'll probably talk more about this in our later section, but you know, I, I've never been somebody with prejudices against people of color or different nationalities or anything like that. But since becoming a teacher and having the majority of my students being students of color and students from different walks of life and socioeconomic status and all that kind of stuff that is explored in this movie, that kind of stuff really grates on me because I want to be an advocate for my students. And so there are moments in this movie that just like make me livid. And the, the biggest one is the scene later in the film when Anita comes to the, the drugstore and is trying to pass on a message to Tony and she is just treated like absolute trash. And I, I was like, I was shaking <laughs> in my seat and I was so pissed off. That kind of stuff just really, really grates on me. And it should grate on anybody, but unfortunately it doesn't grate on everybody. And so having this movie that explores that theme and the, the idea of how we treat each other despite our differences 
and as you were saying, the commonalities that we can still find with each other, even though we are different, that, that really speaks to me. And that's something that is missing from Romeo and Juliet is I, I don't relate with any of those people because they're just people with a, a feud. It's, it's not applicable on a wider scale. Exactly. And what West Side Story, I think, adds is that sense of family. Not mm-hmm. if, we, if we make the comparison to Romeo and Juliet, the families are the backdrops. They're the reasons why these two cannot get together. That exists in West Side Story, but there is an emphasis on the importance of family, the importance of being a part of something. In fact, when I think it's Riff, he goes to, to talk to Tony, there's this really fantastic dialogue between them where Tony is essentially saying, no, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And Riff says, look, just come to the dance. Maybe you'll find what it is that you're looking for. And, and there's some manipulation there. I can see that. But there's also a sense of genuine friendship where Riff, yes, he wants Tony to come to the dance. But I think he wants Tony to be happy. Mm-hmm. And as a side note, when it comes to these kinds of musicals, I love the... I love to pay attention to the non-dance choreography, like the way in which people interact when they have like props in their hands. I'll always say this when I watch White Christmas and my wife gets annoyed with me because I'll be like, this is my favorite scene. It's when Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye are changing clothes after their number and they're talking about, you know, what they're going to do and having, you know, how Danny Kaye's like, you know, if you could have these kids for 45 minutes, I'd at least have time to get a massage. That whole dialogue takes place with them changing clothes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm watching that same stuff happen with, with Riff and Tony. And there's not a ton of meticulousness that happens, but there's back and forth between them and dialogue. There's movement where Tony's moving a a case of Cokes. And at one point he cracks open a bottle using this fantastic technique. He doesn't have a bottle opener. So he uses like the edge of a pipe or something. Mm -hmm. And he sits down and he drinks and you can, you can feel the heat of New York and how, you know, how he's been working all day and he sighs and it's at that point that he delivers that line, I've been looking for something. I just don't know what it is. It's like I'm reaching out for something mm-hmm. and I can't grab it. And, you know, Riff's trying to connect with that, but he's obviously not catching all that. But at the same time, he's like, look, come to the dance. And the dialogue in this movie is fantastic. I love the names that they have for these individual characters. I love that he says, maybe there'll be something twitching at the dance tonight for you or something like that. (laughs) And all that stuff kind of intermixed. You, you see a camaraderie, you see a common language that exists not only between Riff and Tony, but Bernardo and, and Anita and, and all these different, these characters that I think allow us to believe they are who they are. I mean, the fact is Natalie Wood is not Puerto Rican. She's very much American that has been tanned up to look Puerto Rican. But I wouldn't have known that when I first watched this because I wouldn't have thought of her. I've only seen her in black and white uh, up until they colorized and butchered, you know, Miracle on 34th Street by doing that. But I didn't know that at the time. And so her dialect felt very believable, especially around these other actual Hispanic actors. And so for me, I think that sense of loyalty and wanting to stay connected with family really did allow me to connect with these guys and and appreciate the movie. And it's one thing that I, I, I'm drawn to each time I watch it. Well, speaking of those relationships, let's talk about Tony and Riff. Starting off with Riff, he he's obviously sort of the leader. He is the leader of the Jets at this point. He and Tony started it together, but Tony has gone off and been enlightened and is doing other things with his life other than 
picking fights and controlling turf. He's being an adult. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically it. He's being responsible. Yeah. But Riff, he's still very likable. He's still respected by the other members of his group. They go to him. He's got final say in decisions when they go to the war council later. And he obviously still has this really close relationship with Tony, even closer than everybody else has. When he says, okay, I got to get Tony. He's going to be the one to go with me to the war council tonight. I think it's Action who says, who needs Tony? says, I need Tony. We need Tony because he's the one who started this with us and he's still very much my brother. And so we we have that scene where Riff is talking with Tony and con- convincing him. They talk about how for the last several years they've been living together because Riff doesn't have anybody else. And so he really depends on Tony for a lot, for a home, for food, for this relationship that they have. And Tony shares that loyalty to Riff. And that's that's what sort of leads to the tragedy later at the Rumble when he tries to stop Riff on Maria's request to just stop the rumble altogether and him interfering in the fight basically leads to Riff's death and Riff's death leads to Tony feeling anger and being reactionary and killing Bernardo in retaliation. And then after that, he is so wrapped up in anguish because he realizes what he's done and he realizes what this might mean for his future with Maria and his future in general. In fact, he tells Maria that he's going to go to the police to turn himself in. So he's very much a, a person who is taking responsibility for himself. He's still very loyal to the people he cares about, whether that's Riff earlier in the film or Maria later in the film. So I really like those two characters and how they bounce off each other. Yeah, I think that there's almost like a, there's a, there's a, I want to say a quintet of characters that really keep the narrative going. You've got Tony, Maria, Bernardo, Anita, and and riff these mm-hmm. these five people that really push the overall plot along and in particular i love seeing tony and maria on screen because i felt like everything that they did outside of the scenes well in general the choreography itself was like big that opening sequence everything was huge but in contrast you have tony and maria's relationship that was intimate. It was very much tender in contrast to these other things. And I feel like that was by design because they're essentially hiding their relationship from everybody. They're trying to be exactly who they are. They're trying to be real with each other, but that's in stark contrast to the fact that they're basically being fake to everybody else. And so when it comes to that rumble, what's important about the rumble is that I won't say true feelings come out, but vulnerability is exposed all over the place where you have Tony who is trying to stop and Riff ends up dying and then he ends up retaliating with Bernardo. Well, his vulnerability is exposed because the fact is his blood, his brother's blood is in that, in that sense, thicker than his love for Maria, or maybe it's not. And so there's this real great, I don't know if that, that's a great word, but there's a real interesting tension that exists. And it really does come around those five individuals where you have Tony and Maria or Tony and Riff or Maria and Bernardo. I feel like every scene with those couples, when they're on screen together, matters. They either have a fantastic line of dialogue And when you have the jets and sharks around them, visually, it creates a great sense of support as it's supposed to. But it's only in those moments where, for instance, in the drugstore, I I love 
seeing those two, I, I think it's Tony and Bernardo sitting at a table playing cards or something like that. And, you know, trying to keep from getting in trouble, they're three feet away from each other and they could kill each other in actuality, but there are rules, there are constraints that they're sort of abiding by, but the way it's framed, the way it's blocked, it brings about this sense of the importance of these coupled up relationships, these coupled up characters, and that when they're on screen doing something or saying something, that's when I want to lean in and say, okay, this is important. This isn't just a musical number that's kind of pushing the story along. These are moments that matter. And there were several of them that that I saw this time around. With those five, there's something else that's interesting. You've got Bernardo and Riff, who are in complete opposition to each other, and they have they don't want to do anything with each other, and they don't want anybody else to do anything with each other, too, unless it's a fight. Then you have Tony and Maria, who are like magnets to each other. They are immediately drawn to each other from the moment they see each other. And then you have Anita, who's in the middle of everything, and she could go either way, really. There's moments where she's completely on Bernardo's side. There's moments where she's on Maria's side, and she's trying to help, or she's trying to understand, or maybe doesn't completely understand, but is allowing Maria to be the adult that she wants to be now that she's in America. And so it's like this weird pyramid, I guess, is a way to think about it, where you have Riff and Bernardo on the bottom. So in contrast with each other, Maria and Tony, so in sync with each other on the level above that, and then Anita at the top, kind of just like, which way is it going to go? It's a very intentional way of creating these characters to to fit with each other. I said on our episode that what I love most about West Side Story is that this musical has so many layers to it. And I think you made a great visual by showing these strong connections and strong, like the strong dissonance and the strong consonants with these character pairs that really amplifies that sense of layers. I mean, there are layers of ideas that are stacked on top of each other. The importance of being part of something like being an American or being part of a gang or being in love with someone. I mean, all those things are represented by any one of these characters because Anita, she wants to be an American and she wants to appreciate everything about America, even so far as looking past the prejudice and the racism to a point that she gets to experience the reality of where she is in that, in that scene that you mentioned earlier in, in the drugstore on our episode, Aaron mentioned I think it was that scene in particular that she actually, the the actress, ended up crying after that scene because it was so real to her. Like, what you see on screen, I think the director had said, just get into the, the role and go for it. And so what you see, her reaction, the way she screams, the way she, she gets scared, is genuine. Mm-hmm. And I think that was so important for her, not because it needed to show her that Americans suck, but to show her that the American dream is, in a sense, a pipe dream if you're not the right skin color, mm-hmm. that it's not afforded to everyone. And so this, for her in particular, I think what's interesting about her is her optimism just goes down and down and down and eventually caves in that moment. And to me, I think that's representative of the fact that those who want this but can't get it either live in a sense of naivety or they live in a sense of pessimism. And that's what I think looking at her versus Bernardo, they're kind of polar opposites. They're both Puerto Rican, so they're similar, but they're also different. And it took her experiencing that 
to, I guess, get to the quote realization that being an American isn't just about living in America. Optimistic is exactly the word I used in my notes for Anita as well. She she's open to the possibilities of American life and she's willing to let Maria do what she wants. Still, her affection is for him. So when he does die, she does have that moment where she sort of turns against Maria because she discovers that Tony stayed the night after killing her brother and she feels betrayed. She says, Tony's going to leave you lonely. A boy like that cannot love. A boy who kills cannot love. But Maria says, you know, it's not that black and white. Just as Anita loved Bernardo and forgave him his faults and his mistakes, Maria does the same for Tony. And Anita's momentarily swayed. She says, okay, I will, I will pass on this message to Tony for you. I understand that you love each other, and I understand that has some weight and some importance to it. And then that scene in the, the drugstore happens, and that's all just torn apart. And she tells that lie that gets Tony out and eventually gets him killed. Not that it's her fault. Right. It's just the chain of events that's so unfortunate because of, one, it starts with Bernardo's death, and then it goes to her telling that lie, and that leads to Tony being killed. And this is why I think West Side Story should be considered inspired by Romeo and Juliet, because there is that whole sequence that you just described creates a whole sense of depth. You know, when we look at Romeo and Juliet as a story, you could simplify it and say it's about a man and a woman, a boy and a girl, a couple of teenagers who love each other in spite of their families and end up killing each other because they were stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and that's probably not the greatest way to describe it for anybody out there that loves the loves the story. But when you look at West Side Story, that sequence really exemplifies the fact that this is about more than just star-crossed lovers. Mm-hmm. This is about understanding a value of a person's life beyond where they come from. Mm-hmm. In spite of where they come from, because of where they come from, all that stuff wrapped up. And it becomes very complex, Chad. It's an idea that you sort of wrestle with as an audience. You're like, well, whose side am I on? Because the movie asks you that several times. It says, are you on the side of the Jets and Sharks? Are you on the side of the gangs or the police? Are you on the side of Anita or Bernardo? Are you on the side of Tony or, you know, any, you know, pick your, pick your character, pick your, your group. It's asking you that question. But I think the answer is, you can't really say at any given point because it changes so much. And if this had been from this perspective of one group, it wouldn't have been nearly as effective because we get to find and we get to appreciate and we get to become very empathetic of both sides. The only side that we don't get to see is probably the police. And I think that's by design too, because this isn't a story about the police versus the hoodlums. It's about the jets and the sharks. It's about Maria and Tony. It's about Anita and Bernardo. It's about all these individuals that will eventually make decisions that will impact the lives of other people. So it's, it's like this, this reverberation of actions that lead to consequences, that lead to actions, that lead to consequences. And it's all wrapped up in this musical craziness that is West Side Story. Now, talking about Maria and Tony together, uh, just as a couple, just about their romance, Tony teases, you talked about this earlier, he feels that there's something coming. He's reaching out, he doesn't know what it is, but something's coming, don't know what it is, but it is going to be grand. That something ends up being Maria at the the dance. And I adore that moment when they first see each other across the dance hall, because even though something like that could feel incredibly cheesy, it could feel incredibly corny and just like, oh, got to roll my eyes at this, this is kind of ridiculous. But because of that, that hinting towards 
this this almost feels like I'm drawn to this this dance. This there's something big coming in my future. And you, Maria says the same thing to Anita. This is my first night as an American girl. This is my my big chance to introduce myself as such. And so they both go with these expectations, and both of them fulfill their expectations in meeting each other. And later that night, when he goes and visits her, and they have the balcony scene, of course. He says, I love you that first night. And to me, at least, it's, again, not an eye roll moment because it's so genuine. We, we've seen just the, the progression of something's coming. Oh, wow, she is beautiful. Oh, wow, he's really handsome. They have this special moment on the dance floor. And then the, the, the fact that he seeks her out and finds her and they, they share this moment, it, it feels genuine to me. And I, I don't mean this to be like a bashing on Romeo and Juliet episode. That's not what I've tried to do. But like, if, I feel if I saw Romeo and Juliet and that moment happened with them and it's just like, oh, wow, this, this woman is so beautiful, whatever. They, I, I'm not going to try and speak Shakespeare. But <laughs> that, that feels like an eye roll moment to me because it's like, oh, okay, yeah, you love her, sure. But the way it builds in this adaptation really works for me. What I think is appealing about this in contrast to the the Romeo and Juliet love story, is that the thing that both of them are reaching out for is not necessarily to fall in love with someone. Mm-hmm. What we get from from Tony is that he, what we glean is that he's been working for a while. He's trying to be, you know, live the the straight, you know, be on the straight and narrow. We don't really know what his motivation is. We know that he's just kind of gotten out of gang life, and that he's really just trying to get his life together. He's matured. Contrast that with, with Maria, who I think Natalie Wood plays her innocence really, really well. There's a, something I picked up this time around was she's kind of complaining about having a baby dress. She said, could we not dye it red? (laughs) And then she puts it on and she loves it. Mm-hmm. And you can, I mean, you can see, um, I needed to go just being like, yeah, I was awesome. I made this, <laughs> but what, what I realized, Chad was when you have that moment with, with Tony and Maria at the dance, which is choreographed really well, everything's blurry. And then the background cast is moving in slow motion. I thought that was pretty amazing. She's in that white dress. Had she been in a red dress? Had she been in a different color dress? something that wasn't white, that didn't stand out as much. Physically, I don't think he would have noticed her. But the bigger, like 30,000 foot observation I made is that ultimately they're both looking for significant, I believe, they're both looking for significance beyond just the world that they've lived in for so long. They're both, I believe, trying to break out of this sense of it can't just be about the life that we live here in New York. It can't just be about not being a Puerto Rican or being a shark or being a jet or being related to a jet or a shark, there's something more. And so his looking at her and her looking at him, I think opened them up to feel free. And they saw each other, not as an American, as a Puerto Rican or a jet or a shark in in that kind of thing, but as human beings, everything was torn down. Granted, it was sort of truncated. We didn't get that explanation. And I don't know that we were meant to get that explained to us, but particularly on this rewatch, I realized that I felt like they were longing for something and it wasn't just a superficial love to be with someone. It was about saying, 
being with you, Maria, helps me see a world that I would never see beyond the world that I know, which is the world of the of the Jets. And I think Maria, looking at him, says the same thing. She wouldn't see a world beyond what her brother does and beyond the sense of Americans being pigs and Puerto Ricans being the best. So when you see them together in that moment and you see him confess his love to her later on in that, I guess you could call it iconic balcony scene that's mm-hmm. reminiscent of Romeo and Juliet, you're right. His profession of love to her isn't just that like he's got the hots for her, that he's found his wife. He's found freedom. Um, it reminded me a lot, I guess, because this movie takes place in New York, too. There's a scene in Newsies where the main character is is singing, so that's what they call a family, mother, father, daughter, son. Christian Bale's character is trying to leave. He wants to get out. He wants to discover something new. And I felt like, man, that's Tony. Tony wants a life that's not defined. He wants a life that is without bounds. And seeing Maria, I think, gives him that. And I think the same way, the same thing applies for her to him. Ultimately, they're both seeking identity outside of their personal bubbles. And seeing how fervently Tony pursues Maria, he insists, I'm not one of the Jets. He's not saying, I'm not like the rest of them. He's saying, I'm not one of them. And he says, your, your parents are going to like me. Your brother will even like me. And he's so willing to adopt parts of her culture and not at, at, as like a joke or to tease. That first night when he comes to see her, he makes attempts to echo her Spanish so he can learn where she comes from and learn who she is. She's not, he's not mocking at all. And there's this really sweet scene between them uh, at the dress shop where they sort of envision this perfect version of their future that ultimately doesn't come to pass because of all the violence that's happening around them. But they have this ideal scenario where they go to their family and they get approval from all their family and they go through their vows and they have like this pseudo wedding in the dress shop. And it's, it's this really, really sweet moment. But it's also a really tragic moment because it's a future that they envision for themselves that ultimately doesn't come to pass. It is tragic. And at the same time, it's something that I want to say it's it's Rita at the end. She or Anita, she says at the very end, it's that last scene. She's proclaiming that hate killed all three of these men. And and then I love seeing that the sharks help to pick up Tony's body and help carry it out to the to the park. There's almost like this this coda that happens when she says that. Could it be a statement about the social culture of the world that we're living in? Maybe. But again, I think the story itself doesn't lend itself to being about just these two individuals. It's what they represent and the the idea that they are grasping at something that they ultimately can't get, which is a tragedy in and of itself because they're held back by the culture that at least in part, define them. And so it, it does raise questions afterwards. Are we shaped by nature or nurture? Yes, <laughs> that's the answer to the question. But I think the bigger question is, what influences who we become? And I think both of them wanted to become more than just what they started out as. But tragically, culture pulled them back in and ended up costing them. And that final scene is also... It also demonstrates how Maria has matured over the course of the film. You were pointing out earlier at the beginning of the film, uh, she wants the the red dress. She says, can, can we at least dye it red? This is a baby's dress. White is for babies. 
at the end of the film, she's wearing a red dress because she's had to mature quickly because of the events that have happened over this night and her relationship with Tony. And she says, I can kill now too, because now I have hate in me, Mm. which is heartbreaking. She even says, she says to Tony at the beginning of the film, he's uncertain with what she sees in him. He says, are you sure this isn't a joke? She says, I have not learned to joke that way. She's, she's young. She hasn't experienced the gamut that life has had to offer at that point. But by the end of the film, she basically has, she's gone through heartbreak. She's gone through joy. She's gone through love and loss. And now at the end, she's grown up. The red dress symbolizes that. And also just the fact that she, she wields the gun at everybody. She says, I have hate in my heart now too. Do I have enough bullets to kill all of you? Because I could do that because of how, how much you all have hurt me, how much you have hurt Tony and how much you are hurting each other. So really, really good stuff. Did you have any other characters that you wanted to talk about? No, I think those, those five did a lot for, for my movie experience. Mm -hmm. And I did just want to highlight doc because doc is the, he's like the voice of reason and the way he slaps Tony back to reality. That that's a really heartbreaking scene too. uh, Before he tells the, the false story that Anita gave him that, Maria has been shot and killed. He, yeah. he slaps Tony to bring him back to reality and says, is this the only way to get through to you with violence mm-hmm. to, to, to explode, to burst like a bubble? Is that the only way I can connect with you? Yeah. And it, it's again, highlighting the tragedy. We, we keep using that word because that's what Romeo and Juliet is. And that's what this movie is. It's a tragedy. <laughs> so there and, we go. We agree with something about Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, apparently <laughs> <laughs> there's a great line that he says, weapons you couldn't just play basketball right (laughs) he legitimizes the fact that yeah you're going to get mad at each other but it's really not as bad as you're making it out to be of course it is but yeah you're right he is exactly the voice of reason and um yeah it's good now going on to music there's probably lots to be said about music i kept a list of songs that made me cry (laughs) okay (laughs) and some of them are inexplicable and some of them are just like wait why america made me cry I don't know why. I think that might have just been like a memory thing. Like, oh, this is so nostalgic for me. Uh, Tonight, One Hand, One Heart, uh, Somewhere. And then I Have a Love, which is Maria's response to A Boy Like That from Anita. So there's the songs that made me cry tonight, everybody. And plus that the whole instrumental moment at the back 10 minutes of the film from the moment Tony gets shot, where it's just somewhere over and over and over again. And it's like a somewhere that's never going to come. Well, for me, there are two songs that stand out. One from the music lyric side and one for the choreography. Mm-hmm. I hinted at the early part of the episode that my professor played this track for us and it, the track was quintet uh-huh. because what he wanted to show was the dissonance that Sondheim and Bernstein created by overlaying these five different parts of playing, of playing on the word tonight and the significance of tonight. Mm-hmm. So you have Tony and Maria singing about tonight. Tonight won't be just any night. You know, there's, I'm in love. Then you've got Rita who was like, tonight I'm going to get, get some. My, <laughs> I'm going to get some. Exactly. <laughs> and then you have the jets and the sharks who are like, we're going to rumble tonight. So there's this musical dissonance in terms of rhythm, in terms of melody, all overlaid on each other. And I think that really re-emphasizes the layers of this narrative that exist, how there's so much going on and it's all kind of singularly put together by this one word. Tonight means something different to all of these groups. And if we go back to our characters, 
tonight means something different to all five of these individuals. And I, I think that that was incredibly smart, incredibly deliberate, obviously. The other song that stands out to me actually was part of my original experience with this movie. I didn't know that there was a Gap commercial that utilized this particular song. It was cool, uh-huh. where you have obviously the the uh, the Jets, you know, keep it cool, boy, real cool. <laughs> I remember seeing that in a Gap commercial and like seeing it in West Side Story and going, oh my gosh, they totally stole this from Gap. And I'm like, no, you didn't. It was the other way around. <laughs> I love the choreography in this. I love that everybody is exactly that. They're cool. I love seeing riffs and easy action. And it goes back to that prologue where you have this combination of really great singing, really great choreography, but but really emphasizing the fact that, you know what, they're ready to fight, but they got to keep it cool. Mm-hmm. And it's probably next to Quintet, probably my favorite song because it's fun to sing. It's When I talk about this movie with my family and my wife, I'll be like, I'll just snap and I'll say, hey, babe, let's keep it cool, boy. Real <laughs> cool. And she just shakes her head at me like she normally does. But it's probably the the track on the on the soundtrack that stands out to me, probably for the cultural reference more than anything. But it's it's one that stays with me. If I think about West Side Story, that's the first song that comes to mind right after Quintet. I think most of the songs that really stand out to me are the love songs. I mean, in high school, I really liked G Officer Krupke, and I could probably still sing all the words to G Officer Krupke. And the Jets song is obviously really great too, but. Now, just thinking about the things that I like to listen to the most, there's Tonight, there's Maria is really, really good. And what, what's really cool about Maria is that that interval, Maria, it's like a, uh, it's leading into that final note, Maria, and it, it's like a re- resolution. And at the very end of the song, it goes, uh, Maria, and it changes it at that very last time. It's just such yeah. a cool musical technique the, the way it leads into that that it leans into the tension and it resolves it and it's really really sweet but yeah I, I i love all those and somewhere obviously is really really sweet and one hand one heart is really really sweet so those those are my like standout songs but cool is fun anything that has that big choreography really really great and i was reading earlier that cool was just so intense that they, it led to like people passing out and you know jeremy <laughs> robbins I, something worth pointing out jeremy robbins he's the choreographer and so he's a co-director for this film but he just chore- he, he directed the the choreography sequences um but he actually got fired at a certain point because he couldn't he couldn't contain himself <laughs> he he would say okay uh let's rehearse this over and over and over again and let's film this over and over and over again and he wouldn't know when to say cut and then he would say i, I actually listened to an interview with russ tamblin on uh alec baldwin's podcast just this past weekend who plays riff and he says there was one time where they were dancing down the streets of new york and they had block of new york blocked off which is a big deal no matter what any time even in the 60s and he would say okay this time let's do it again but this time i want you to step out on the other foot first and so they would have to do all their choreography opposite, which is just like this mind warp thing. And so <laughs> Jeremy Robbins, he's a genius as far as like choreography goes. There's some really great choreography in here, but he he pushed himself a little bit too far and asserted himself a little bit too much and got himself fired from this movie, even though he still got the, the co-director credit and still got the Oscar. I think that, I guess that would qualify him as the Stanley Kubrick of choreographers. Yeah, maybe so. Of, I mean, just <laughs> a little too method. Do it again. Let's do it again. Do it again. This time, do it on your hand and not your feet. We're going to do this whole thing again. Let's go. 
the music, I mean, it's it's great. I've gotten an opportunity once to play some of this music on my instrument. Uh, I stood in for somebody at a rehearsal, and it's really difficult. It's really challenging, as anything Leonard Bernstein is. But really, really great experience. Even though I didn't get to perform it, and I only played it for the one, like, two-hour rehearsal, it was a highlight for me, for sure. So lots of great music, and we don't need to tell you that because it's Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. So... <laughs> To go into our final section, this is going to be a little bit of a change, and it's going to be going forward on Cinescope. We previously called this section themes slash relevance, but I never, it was always like a nebulous kind of thing. Okay, like, okay, guys, let's talk about the the takeaways or the, the themes or the, the how is this relevant to you kind of section. And so I'm rephrasing that, restructuring it. This is now the impact section, which is not too dissimilar from feeling films. Uh, uh, connecting point. connecting point. Um, <laughs> although we're not necessarily naming a scene, it's just it's a, a better word to sum up what exactly we're aiming for in this part of the discussion. How has this film impacted you or impacted others or things you do take away? We can still talk about the same thing. So is there anything in particular uh, that really stands out aside from things we've really already talked about? Well, I wanted to touch on the the idea of understanding other cultures and with Parasite recently winning the Oscar for for Best Picture, there was so much celebration, um, even though it essentially shattered my my Oscar picks and lost me a pop. <laughs> no, it didn't. Other things did that. But I've had a chance to talk to um, a couple of folks. Matt Fletcher, he's one of the the uh, members of our Facebook group, and he mentioned specifically just how he cried because as a as an Asian American, uh, someone who is natively from Korea, seeing that kind of representation just completely impacted him and how he was so proud of that. So taking that and coupling it with over the last two or three years, being exposed to the the culture that we're in where racism in various forms is is very much a reality, kind of digesting all that. Watching West Side Story now, even from several years ago and particularly from the first time I watched it has changed my opinion, not for the better or worse towards the movie, but it's made me appreciate and somehow in some ways depreciate the movie. I'll go with the bad first watching Natalie Wood as an American playing someone of a person of color. I don't know what kind of, talent there was out there. I know that Anita is not Puerto Rican. She is, I think, Russian American. And so there's definitely, I won't call it like whitewashing or, you know, the, the blackface type of thing, but it, it called, it, it called attention to the fact that what we're going to get in the 2020 version of this is going to be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Are we going to get true representation of Puerto Ricans playing these characters? I hope that's the case. So I'm very much aware of that. I'm very conscious of that. But at the same time, there is a real relevance to what is shown to us through this narrative, that racism is still a real thing, that there are people out there that are guilty because of being just deliberately racist or deliberately prejudiced or deliberately just hateful. And there are those who are guilty by omission too. And that's something that I've worked through and struggled with is not only with my own personal life, but also trying to realize, trying to get to the place of saying, 
what do I contribute for or against this narrative of white privilege or of uh, representing people of color? And so even before our episode started, I was talking to to Matt about this idea that I want to kind of get more exposure to Asian films and the what I'm calling Tales from the East. And so getting recommendations from him and other people that have that kind of understanding so that I can appreciate filmmaking across the globe, not just so that I can be more culturally relevant. And so when I watch West Side Story, what I see is a reminder that even if you don't look like me or talk like me or act like me, it doesn't make you any less of a person. And that sounds very shallow and very much like a, wow, you're kind of a jerk patch. Why are you talking like that? But that's the truth because I, for a long time, I had one worldview. Even my faith is shaped with a worldview. And so being able to understand that other people from a faith-based standpoint don't believe the same things I do, they might have conflicting beliefs that I do, it doesn't make developing and, and maintaining really great friendships and really meaningful relationships with them impossible. In fact, it encourages that because I need to understand people around me and the worldviews that they represent because it helps me understand the world around me. And so for me personally, I look at West Side Story as an opportunity to sort of explore that, to feel like in the context of a musical, a narrative exists to help us get to a place where we understand that there are people around us that are different and that doesn't make them any less than we are. That if anything, it encourages us to, like Tony, reach out for that thing that might help us uh, understand more about the world that we live in because it's beyond a microphone, it's beyond a southern state, it's beyond even a faith that that drives us, that there's a world out there that I need to be exposed to and that I want to be exposed to so that I can understand and at the very least love people genuinely that I wouldn't normally have in my circles. And so I'm grateful for for this movie and I'm grateful for that exposure that I've been given and how it's helped me kind of see this movie in a different way. I like all of that, but I also just from like a perspective of exploring different types of Americans, like obviously not all Americans are white people. In fact, the majority are probably not white people anymore, which is awesome. There's the moment when uh, Shrank comes up and kicks the Puerto Ricans out of the uh, the drugstore. And as they're walking out, they whistle, my country tis of thee. And it's just a, a really fascinating and genuine moment that points out, yeah, these guys are from Puerto Rico, but where do they live now? They live here. They're Americans. And Puerto Rico, hey, guess what? It's part of America too. So we, we have to set aside those biases that we have. People having different skin color than you or me does not make them any less American than you or me. And so we, we do have to be open to talking about and exploring those race relations. And in this movie, we also see instances of sexism, particularly towards the, the character anybody's. And even within the Puerto Rican people themselves, in the, right before the song America, Bernardo says to Anita, back home, women know their place. Because Anita is trying to get Bernardo to do something that she wants him to do and not do what he wants to do, which is go off and fight and have this war council. And so that inherently is really sexist too. So this movie as a whole is just exploring how people aren't lesser than each other, whether it's down to race or down to sex. But something else that I really wanted to highlight about 
the story here is how unnecessary so much of what happens is. There are times when the Jets and the Sharks seem like they could be and kind of are friends. It's like they enjoy the rivalry back and forth for each other. Talking to Lieutenant Shrank the first time, they're making, they're poking fun at Shrank and they're all laughing at it. When they're at the dance, there's moments when, yeah, they're having this back and forth. We're like, oh, I can dance better than you. It's a dance off. I mean, there's, there's some fun to be had in that anyways. At the war council at Doc's drug store or the candy store, they're, they're pretending, you mentioned the scene earlier where they're pretending to play cards with each other and have a good time and, sh- and throw darts. It comes pretty naturally to them, it seems to me. But when it comes down to their turf and standing up for their sisters and whatnot, that's when it gets ugly and that's when they show hatred. But still, it's so unnecessary. There's also this line in the quintet song where it goes back and forth between the Jets and the Sharks and they each say, well, they began it. Well, they began it. And it's like, well, who began it? You probably both had a hand in beginning something. And so it's just so unnecessary. And Doc points out that same thing. He says, for you, trouble is a relief. You, you, You seek these opportunities to fight each other. And then he says, when do you kids stop? You make this world lousy. And I, I, I want to ask you about this. Action's response to that question is, we didn't make it, Doc. So what do you think is being said there? <laughs> <laughs> we probably can't talk well, about it forever, but that's, that's a sure. really loaded response. It is. And I think it speaks to the intellect that's hidden with in the world of the Jets and the Sharks is because... To the cops, to Doc, that's all these kids are, is just kids. And so Action's response to him, I think, is really more of a sins of the father kind of response that, in a sense, he might be saying it's not our fault, but I think more so he's saying it didn't start with us. And so that line that you mentioned, I don't think they're necessarily talking about the fact that it started with the Sharks, the Jets. I think they're both kind of in agreement that this happened a long time ago. This started a long time ago. We're just carrying on the tradition because... That's all we know. Oh, man. And it's it's very sad. That reminds me of, I believe it's another Rodgers and Hammerstein, or I say another, it's a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, South Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a song in that musical called You Have to Be Carefully Taught, Yep. which is like, racism isn't inherent. This this clashing with each other isn't inherent. You have to be taught this. And so yeah. that's that's a really fascinating place to think about that. And you look at the way the kids are treated by the adults, particularly the cops, Shrank comes in and he's complaining about being asked to understand the hoodlums. Like what's the, what's the struggle? Like what would be the consequence of you trying to understand these kids and their lifestyle? And you know, the kids, the, the jets joke about it in G officer Krupke. They say, you know, it's, it's all about our upbringing that brought us here. They're poking fun at it, but it's like, who knows? Maybe their lives are awful. Maybe they do have these terrible home lives. And so you can't completely blame them for everything that happens. Yes, there's a sense of responsibility, but yes, again, it's Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. It's always been burning. <laughs> no, Ryan started the fire. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> With the cheese pita. With the cheese pita, right. <laughs> uh, any other highlights in impact? Well, uh, you know, nothing, nothing that comes to mind. I think that's the biggest thing. And I like the fact that I can wrestle with this and that it's going to, I think continuously be something that's relevant because more than anything, if, if this is something that has changed my life, not the movie necessarily, but this perspective that I've sort of gained over the last several years, kind of a plus one to that is that I can recommend this movie as an opportunity to say, if you want to understand this to an extent, let's go back to 1961. This is a great 
way to kind of express this even back in the 60s, uh, where ideas that still kind of echo today can be appreciated not only from a relevant standpoint, but also from a cinematic and a musical standpoint. So it creates more momentum for me to say, you should see West Side Story. Why? Well, here's 10 reasons instead of five. (laughs) I am really super excited, if we can talk about this for a second, to see what Spielberg does, because there's already so much relevance in this 1961 film to us now, 50 years later almost. 50. 60 years later almost goodness yeah because i have the 50th anniversary blu-ray so there's already so much in the 1961 film i can't imagine the way spielberg's going to explore some of these same same themes except maybe even a greater extent in this new film so i'm cautiously optimistic i think it was delayed a year i remember when we were talking about on feeling film our most anticipated of 2019 i think this was one that came up it was and and it and it was delayed a year so that that never really bodes well, although, you know, it just means that he just didn't finish production or something other random. What I am, I don't know a lot about it. I don't even know about the cast or, you know, if it's going to center around Puerto Ricans and Americans or if it's going to be more relatable to today's culture where you have uh, other minority races or, or whoever. I think more than anything, I'm cautiously optimistic at Spielberg taking on a musical because this is not in his wheelhouse. But the fact is, man, I mean, you have, you have a guy who has a great track record of making great movies. You also have a guy who has the ability to make okay movies, but more than anything, I think most, if not all of his movies have a emotional connection to them, which, you know, as we say on our show, is probably (laughs) the most effective part of watching a movie. So you couple that with what I think will be a, an abundance of these themes that we've talked about. And I feel really, I feel pretty good about what it's going to be. And I'm looking forward to it. Well, just to, to put maybe a few things at ease. Yes, it might've been delayed as far as release date goes, but it wasn't because of like reshooting or anything like that. They didn't start filming the new West side story until June of last year. They didn't finish filming until September of last year. So there was no way it was going to make a end of 2019 yeah. release anyways. So I'm glad that they're having time to work on it. Uh, Ansel Elgort is playing Tony. Great. Uh, I've, I think I've heard him sing before and he's a great singer. And they're bringing in an unknown as Maria, who I do believe has some Puerto Rican blood in her, as opposed to Natalie Wood, who's Russian American. So about as far from Puerto Rico as you can get. Uh, so that's nice. And Rita Marino, who plays Anita in this one that we just talked about, is going to be coming back in a different capacity. She's going to be playing a character named Valentina. Uh, hmm. who, at least Wikipedia says, is a repurposed Doc character, basically. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, I, I I want this to be amazing. I was really excited when I saw this obscure musical starring Hugh Jackman about the circus um, <laughs> a year ahead of time. I was like, this might be amazing. And it turned into my second favorite movie of that year right? Um, yeah. in The Greatest Showman. So seeing West Side Story on the big screen will be pretty fantastic. I've never seen it that way. I really want it to be great. I really do. I do too. And I am hopeful. I I have faith in Spielberg. We'll see. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it when it comes out. (laughs) Let's just, let's meet, let's meet in Texarkana and go see. Yeah, I am totally game. (laughs) Let's make that happen. (laughs) Well, I think we have talked this film to death, which is great. 
So let's go ahead and close. This is the end of the official 84th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me, Patrick. It's great to be back on, and, um, and I, I love being here. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash podcast and at CinescopePod on Twitter. Please continue to go over to Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it already. Leave us a rating and review. Hit that subscribe button to help gain visibility for the show so we can grow our audience. If you have feedback or ideas, you can always email Podcast at gmail.com. Now, Patrick, tell us about your show and where we can find you online. Yeah, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on Facebook and Twitter. I am usually floating around the social media platforms uh, loosely. Uh, so if you want to actually get in touch with me, at me, tag me, do whatever you need to do to get my attention. But if you want to find out more about our show, Feel and Film, you can go to our website, feelandfilm.com. We look at films from today and yesterday from an emotional standpoint as opposed to a technical standpoint. So we talk about those technical aspects, but only as they really relate to how a movie actually makes us feel. So if you want to find out more about the show, you can find out all that at feelingfilm.com. We actually did a, an episode on West Side Story. I mentioned it before. It's actually episode 21. It aired back in 2016 when we were just in our infancy. So maybe you'll hear more thoughts that may or may not be relevant from three or four years ago. I'm interested to kind of listen back to see what I thought back then if uh, if I had a, a different experience. But if you want to experience that or check that out, yeah, episode 21. I'm going to have to pull that episode up again too because I listened to that back in the day. And I remember Aaron didn't particularly love this film. It was his first time seeing it for y'all's episode, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, he said, I think, and, and his opinion hasn't changed much. You know, uh -huh. he wanted, I told him I was recording with you and he goes, make sure you plug the show. And I think <laughs> under his breath, he was like, because I won't. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. But yeah, we both had some good stuff to say. And you'll probably hear some similar thoughts from uh, from that episode that we talked about on, on this one, but yeah, it was good. Well, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also my other podcast an American workplace where we talked about every episode of the office from NBC. Uh, you can find that where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com. and show notes and contact information for this show can be found at the cinescopepodcast.com. And that's all. Thank you so much again, Patrick. It was great having you on, and I look forward to talking with you more in the future about maybe more West Side Story in Texarkana. <laughs> That'll be fantastic. Let's make it happen. Let's do it. Thank you, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies. So I'm serious. Like if, if I can, if I can make it happen, if you want to meet in Texarkana, we should go see it. I will I'm do not... it and I will bring my setup and we can record in Starbucks again or whatever. Uh, that sounds great to me. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll tentatively plan on that. And... Okay. That is when it'll probably have to be after the turn of the new year. That's fine. Uh, just because holiday travels and whatnot. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> we, we front load a lot of our episodes during the holidays because we both travel or because I travel and it's difficult to, to break away. So yeah, if we can if we can make that happen, I'd love that. Yeah, it comes out December eighteenth, which I might actually be able to do right before holiday travel, but it, it just depends and we can okay. discuss that when we get closer.
Yeah. Uh, real quick for your benefit. Um, I didn't plug this on the show, but there's a book that I got called something's coming, something good, but oh, yeah. story and the West Side story and the American imagination by Misha Burson. It's a really just kind of a commentary on the musical. It's history. She breaks down some of the choreography, some of the scenes, kind of puts her own little spin on, hey, this is why I liked it, that kind of thing. But it's really good. It's really, really good. Okay, I'll look into that. And, you know, you should uh, check out that interview that I mentioned with Russ Tamblin. Yeah, Um, let me – I wanted to write that down. Let me – Yeah, so it's Alec Baldwin's podcast. It's called Here's the Thing, which is actually my favorite podcast. It's really, really great. Alec Baldwin's a fantastic interviewer. Russ Tamlin, I mean, he's like 88 years old now, but he talks about West Side Story and he talks about some of his other films in his career and it's a really great conversation. So, Okay. I'll queue it up. Um, I might have some time later in this week to to sit down and put my ears on Mm because when you manage people, you can barely get a chance to just kind of plug in and do your work. So I I know as a teacher, that's difficult for you. Yeah. I, I had a work conference this past weekend and I was able to catch up on a lot of podcasts, which is really great. Uh, and that was one of them. <laughs> good, 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 good.